Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. One of the flaws of human nature is that uh, when we have something long enough, we tend to devalue it. That may be true of your spouse or something you have, but it never lasts. And if we're not careful, we, we take this thing called freedom for granted and we forget that freedom's never free and that there are people who died defending our freedom. The fact that we do what we do, we would still do what we do even if we weren't free, but we wouldn't do it uh, in this way and we wouldn't have the freedom to do it the way we do it. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I don't ever want to take that for granted. That's why Memorial Weekend is so important to us because it reminds us that there are other people who died so that we could be free. And it becomes important what we do with our freedom. I think that uh, the greatest way to say thank you to all those who gave their lives for freedom is to live the kind of life that has such exemplary quality and is so invested in the needs of other people that it's your way of saying thank you for your sacrifice. And so I hope that's what we do. And I hope that's what we're called to. That's certainly our calling in Christ, the one who died for us. And so let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for freedom today. And we're grateful for those that gave all uh, in defense of freedom. And I pray that we would never take that for granted in this beautiful country we live in and the the greatest nation in the history of the world. I'm sure we have our problems, but Father, you've given us what nobody else ever enjoyed. May we never take that for granted. And may we use it, this freedom that we have, to be all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Joey referenced this book, Crazy Love, by Francis Chan. Um, And I've always loved that title, Crazy Love. But, you know, I thought about it. You know, two millennial before Francis Chan wrote the book Crazy Love, Paul wrote a book that should have been called Crazy Joy. We call it the book of, of Philippians, and it is a book that describes crazy joy. You see, here's the thing. One of the things that Americans love is the pursuit of happiness, right? We have We have these indelible rights of life, liberty, and what's that third one? The pursuit of happiness. And there are people all over our world that are chasing happiness. The problem is they're chasing it in all the wrong places. And the problem with happiness goes at its very nature that happiness is so circumstantially uh, based that when good things happen, it's even in the word, when good things happen, then I'm going to be happy. Or even if, if I'm happy in that moment and that thing was good, the value of that thing begins to dissipate because of this thing called uh, diminished returns. And, and eventually the thing that made me happy doesn't make me happy anymore. And so we've got this moving target of happiness. It's circumstantial. It's vacuous. It's vaporous. Paul instead talks about joy. And joy is transcendent. It's uh, eternal and it's not based upon circumstances. And Paul was living in, his, in, in this moment in these terrible circumstances. In fact, when he writes this book on joy, he's actually in a Roman prison, which to me is the story. Because as I read Philippians, I'm like, this is nuts. This is crazy. 
This guy is expressing genuine joy in the worst possible circumstances. And then I realized, I want what that guy's got. I want what he's got. And I want you to have it too, because joy not only should be the normal expression of Christian life, but it's a fruit of the Spirit. How do we get it? Well, let's look at it. And we're going to walk through this briefly this morning. I just want us to look at five verses this morning with about ordaining uh, joy for ministry. But we're also in the summer of joy. And so I want us to be people of joy. And so let's look at this book. Uh, we're going to begin in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, this, verse 12 this morning. And, and, and the first thing that I see that Paul did, and this is the part I wanted to emphasize, is you have to resist the natural negative. It is natural to be negative when circumstances go against us. But I want you to see how Paul processed the difficulties that he was going through because this is the key to crazy joy. Okay, look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, you see that? Underline that part. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Um, that word circumstances is actually a little phrase that, that was a combination of three little Greek words. And the literal translation of that is this stuff that's gone against me. He's basically saying, this stuff that's gone against me. You ever have days like that where everything seems to go against you? This stuff that's gone against me. Well, what was going against Paul? Well, he'd gone to Jerusalem because he wanted to tell the Jews about Jesus, and they arrested him. They accused him of sedition. They tried to get him executed by the Romans. When that didn't work, a group of them banded together and swore allegiance that they were going to kill Paul. Word gets back to the Roman guard. They speared him away to Caesarea, where he spends the next two years as the Jews weaponized the legal system just to keep him in prison for two years. If you can imagine that you are unjustly accused, everybody knows he's innocent, but he still spends two years there. And while he's there, the local politicians are trying to find ways to leverage his imprisonment to extort money out of the church. They're actually doing that too. Finally, when one of them says, we're going to take you back to Jerusalem, Paul appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He had that right. And Caesar, of course, was Nero, the maniacal nutcase that was, uh, you know, as, as bad as they come when it comes to leaders. And so Paul has to appeal to that Caesar. He's going to stand before Caesar. So they put him on an Alexandrian grain ship. He heads to Rome. There's a shipwreck. Uh, he survives the shipwreck. He has snake bit. Spends the next two years in Roman prison. He combines all of that in that little statement, my circumstances. And I've got to tell you, I think my description would have been a bit more detailed and a little more colorful. If I was writing Philippians, here's how verse 12 would go. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that I have been unjustly imprisoned by scheming evil people who hate God, hate our country, hate everything we stand for. They lied about me. They tried to kill me. They held me prisoner for two years. And as a result, I have to take this thing all the way to the Supreme Court to have my rights reinstated as a Roman citizen. I will use every means within my power to silence this insidious enemy and put an end to these rabid, wicked anti-Christians. This is prejudice and persecution of the worst sort. They have trampled on my liberties, besmirched my reputation, impeded my livelihood, and imperiled my life. I intend to make sure that they pay for everything they have done. 
Sound familiar? That's the language of the modern church in the culture wars. You seldom hear grace. You never hear joy. Contrast that to Paul. I mean, notice in my take on it, it's all about me, right? What, what's been done to me, how I have been wrongly treated. But with Paul, there's none of that. He just says, my circumstances. Notice, too, that the gospel, in my, in my case, has been completely forgotten, uh, and my purpose is forgotten. But in Paul's case, the gospel was preeminent. Notice that I'm attacking the problem instead of promoting the solution. Paul was always promoting the solution. Now, look, all of that is natural negative. When we perceive that people are against us, it's so hard for us not to go on the attack, and we attack the thing that we feel is attacking us, Right? Or, for some people, we attack ourselves, and we begin to blame ourselves. I mean, Paul could have done that. He could have been all over himself. He could have said, why did I have to go to Jerusalem? Everybody told me not to go to Jerusalem. I had to go to Jerusalem. Way to go, Paul. You're so stubborn. You're so obstinate. You've got to do... And some people will do that, and they'll begin to just beat themselves down and attack themselves. Paul didn't attack anybody. He just said, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So if we're going to find real crazy crazy, stupid joy. We can't just bend to the natural negative. You've got to exert your will under the power of the Spirit to do what is supernatural. And then you embrace the the proactive positive. You know, there's an old country song. I heard it yesterday and it stuck in my head. Where did I go wrong? Where did he go right? Remember that? Where did I go wrong? You know, sing with me. Where did he go right? I know I'd won the battle if I'd known there was a fight. Isn't that how it goes? Remember that song? And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, he got the second part of that right. Where did he go right? You know, sometimes what we do is we just focus on where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? Where did it go wrong? What's gone wrong? And we never get around to what's going right. But look what Paul does. He embraces the positive, and he saw three things that happened that I want to lift out of here real quickly. First, the praetorian guard was getting changed. Look at verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and everyone else. The praetorian guard was a... Was, was essentially the special forces branch of the Roman legion armies, and they were stationed in Rome to protect Rome against the Roman generals who would sometimes bring their armies into Rome. But they also worked as sort of a combination CIA, FBI, police force, paramilitary, the whole thing. And they were the ones that were assigned to Paul. So when Paul's in prison, his guards become a captive audience, and he starts to do what Paul does. He shares the gospel with his guards, and they begin to, to, to embrace faith. That's the most extraordinary thing. These hardened soldiers are coming to faith in Christ. And you know, historians tell us that the church in Rome was primarily Christianized through the military branch. Now, for sure, before Paul ever got there, there were Christians in Rome because there was a big conflict in A.D. 49, between the Jews and the Christians. 
And this Roman historian writing about it says that there was a big conflict between the Jews and one of their teachers named Christus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. He just misspelled Christos, which is Christ. He thought that Jesus was a living teacher in his time, A.D. 49, and that, uh, uh, that he was a part of the Jews, and there was this big consternation over it. So the emperor finally gets fed up with it and says, I'm sick of these guys. Get them all out of here. And they kicked all the Jews out of Rome. That's why Ananias and uh, Aquila and Priscilla run into Paul in Acts chapter 18 because they'd been kicked out of Rome. So there was a church there. But after they got kicked out in 49, they start to trickle back in. And so those Christians who had trickled back in are the ones that Paul wrote the, the letter of Romans to, the, the book of Romans in the New Testament. They're these Christians who had come back in after they'd all been kicked out. But here's the thing. They were at the very bottom of the social strata, the poorest of the poor. The Jews were that way, and by virtue of the fact that the church was emerging from the Jewish community, they too were sort of the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, in terms of social status. And now Paul's been imprisoned, and his guards of the praetoriate, and the praetoriate had access to every level of Roman culture and strata. And all of a sudden, the gospel begins to filter not just to the very bottom end, but to every area. In fact, you'll read in Philippians 4 that there were even Christians in the household of the emperor Nero. And I back up and I think about that, and I suddenly realize that it would have been a very different church had Paul not been arrested. And then I begin to extrapolate out from that the consequences of it, that the gospel going through the praetorian influence at every strata, including senators and important, powerful people. And the gospel began to become embraced throughout the Roman culture so much so that by 300 AD, it was the official religion of Rome. And by virtue of that, Rome had won the West and into England and ultimately sailing across into America until you get to this place right here. And it's not a stretch to say that had Paul not been arrested and had the opportunity to speak the gospel into this unique group of people called the Praetoriate, that you and I would be experiencing a very different form of faith. The sovereignty of God is all over this thing. So chances are very good that without this imprisonment, the church in Rome would have looked very different. He goes on to say that his imprisonment is empowering the church. Look at verse uh, 13 again. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard. But look at beyond that, verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord uh, because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Everybody was afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. What if they kick us out again? What if they arrest us? What if, you know, this happens or that happens? And now all of a sudden here comes Paul who seems fearless and, and, and he's already arrested. He's, he's already being tried for his life. They've already done everything they can think to do to him. And they're, they're looking at Paul as Joey looked at that example of faith out of crazy love. And he goes, man, if those people live like that, then I can live like that. And so Paul's like the encouragement is going out. And then he says this crazy thing. He says the gospel's even being preached by those that hate him. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife. I'm like, 
wait a minute, they're doing it out of, <laughs> they're preaching the gospel out of envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for a defense of the gospel. See that? The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And man, when I first read that, I was like, were there people in the church who were preaching the gospel just to, just to hurt Paul? I couldn't wrap my head around it. Why would you do that? I mean, how sick and twisted and bitter is that? And maybe there were, maybe, maybe some Judaizers. But then I realized, no, it was probably the same people that hated Paul everywhere he went. The Jews were angry because Paul threatened Judaism and the law in particular. And the Romans were angry because he threatened their, uh, their idolatry and their pagan worship. And so it probably wasn't so much that they were preaching the gospel for the gospel, but they were preaching against Paul and in the process proclaiming the gospel. And so it probably went like this. Paul says that this man, Jesus, came to earth and did miracles. Paul says he died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. Paul says that without that death on the cross, we're all hopeless and dead in our trespasses and sin. He said that three days later, this Jesus was resurrected. Paul says he personally met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. What a loon. Paul says the only hope is Jesus, not Rome, not the emperor, not the Jews, not the law. He denies our idols. He denies Zeus. He denies all our gods. He says they're nothing but, but wood and stone. And he says that nothing that happens to him is beyond the mercy and control of our loving Lord. Can you guys believe this guy? And the people listening to that were like, yeah, I can believe that. Because something in my heart's telling me I am dead in my trespasses and sin. I don't have any hope, and, and I'm looking for hope, and I'm wanting hope. I want to know what to do with my sin. Where can I go to find healing and forgiveness? And Paul has said his name is Jesus. So yeah, I can believe that. In fact, I want to believe that. In fact, I'm going to believe that. And where do I get baptized? The craziest thing happened, they were... They meant to make things worse for Paul, but they wound up making things far better for the gospel. And the world was changing. Why was it changing? Because one man refused to get defensive. He refused to be offended. He refused to, to, to make it about him. He refused that natural negative and instead, he focused on the proactive positive. He didn't spend all his time going, where did I go wrong? He spent all his time going, where's God going right? And, and you know what he found in the process? Joy. That's where joy is. That's where it resides. When they throw stones at you, don't bend over to pick them up and throw them back. Take a lesson from Nehemiah. He was building the wall. They were saying all kinds of critical things about me. You know what Nehemiah said? Hand me another brick. He didn't, he didn't say hand me a brick. So I can throw it. He, hand me another brick because I'm going to stay on the wall. I'm going to keep doing what I've always done. And we lean into the sovereignty of God. And we stay true to our purpose and calling. And we leave the results up to the Lord we trust Him to be our source of comfort and care. And in the middle of whatever it is we're dealing with, we find joy. Look at this last line. What then? Verse 18. 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Look at this. And in this, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Look, bad stuff's going to happen to you. Maybe happening right now. There's bad people. You know, it's one of the sad things about that Uvalde thing, and my heart's just broken for those people, was that gunman took the freedom that someone else died for, and he used it to destroy people's lives. God wants us to take this freedom that somebody else died to give us, and he wants to use it to pour joy into our life that will infect and influence everybody else around us so that no matter what we go through, great things, bad things, trouble, no trouble, we find joy. Crazy joy comes when we refuse the natural negative and we push for the proactive positive. God's at work in your situation right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're going through, but God's at work in it right now. And He's doing things you need to open your eyes to see and celebrate it and rejoice. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Father, you've been so good to us. You've given us so much, all that we need for life and godliness. And then you let us live in this place called America where churches can thrive openly and in public and we have the freedom to exercise our religion in the marketplace and in the, in the public square. We don't have somebody looking over our shoulder trying to shut us down or throw us in jail. But what we learn from this book is that even if that did happen, we'd still be okay. Oh, there are people who can hear me right now who've been betrayed by somebody they love. They've been hurt and wounded. And it's natural to want to just become negative. Don't let them do that. Open their eyes to see what you're doing and to trust your sovereignty that you're going to work this all together for their good. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.